0: I'm so grateful for Pat's message, and I always am, and uh, you are as well. Thank you for coming to hear her and letting me get in on the act, and uh, thank you for the music. Uh, I thought Daryl and Parley's prelude music was particularly sweet and pleasant, and that marvelous message from the a cappella choir and Professor Woodward, if I had any sense, I would let you think on my wife's message, and I would have the a cappella choir sing that very number one more time, and I would be through because that is my message. I ask now for the blessings of the Redeemer, from which that piece was taken, but I mean literally from the Redeemer, to help me say something about the Way, the only name given under heaven whereby a man can be saved. Recently I was uh, invited by President Bishop of the Missionary Training Center to come and speak to the missionaries there—some 2,000 who were in session any given week of the year—I accepted, because I've always assumed it was impossible to give a poor talk at the MTC. They will take notes and make scriptural cross-references if you read them the telephone directory. Plus, I love to hear them sing, so I went. Following the prayers and the hymns and the announcements and the introductions, I gave them a rousing 40-minute reading of the telephone directory, proving that, indeed, one can give a poor talk uh, at the MTC. But, generous Christian Latter-day Saints that they are, several came up following my remarks and wanted to discuss my message briefly. Actually, most of them either wanted tickets to a basketball game or to complain about the parking ticket hold that financial services had placed on their temple recommends. <laughs> uh, I, I visited with them about those things and others, and the minutes stretched into many minutes and finally into nearly an hour. During that period of time, I had noticed one young elder sort of hanging back around the outer rim of the circle as the other missionaries came and went. Finally the traffic thinned out after quite a little time, and he stepped forward. He said with some uh, timidity, Do you remember me? I said, I'm sorry, I don't. That was a very difficult question, as you might ask. I said, "Uh, Tell me your name. He replied, "Uh, My name is Elder so-and-so. His eyes then searched mine for recognition, but I simply didn't know who this young man was. Summoning his courage for the ultimate revelation, he said, Hinckley Hall, <laughs> a faithful friend is a strong defense. Then I knew who he was. That little coded phrase may not ring any bells for you, but it meant something to him, and he knew it meant something to me. On September 7, 1982, I stood in this exact spot, and gave the only really angry public spanking I have ever given a group of BYU students. The title of my remarks for that back-to-school message that day had been, A Faithful Friend is a Strong Defense, and it had been about students in Hinckley Hall. I spoke of an offense, a felony, falsifying government documents which had been committed in a campus dormitory the April before and which had been widely covered by the press. Five months had passed, but I was still hurting. Time had not soothed me. I spoke of that incident publicly without ever mentioning the names of the participants because I care about honors of morality and honor and personal virtue at BYU. I wanted it clear then and now, if anyone is still wondering, that the behavior of every student at Brigham Young University matters very, very much to me and to what this school stands for. So I said my piece and, for all intents and purposes, forgot about it. But, as you might guess, it had not been so easy for the students involved. Not only were there the burdens of university and church actions, but the civil law made an indelible stroke across the record of some of these young lives. There were tears and courts and sentences and probations. Legally, it had been about as much of a nightmare as a college freshman could have foreseen. Obviously, it had been more of a nightmare than they could have foreseen because the remorse and sorrow over their prank—I put the word in quotes was deep and rending. I recall that very unsavory experience for you this morning, simply to put a happy ending on young, one young man's very difficult experience. His father wrote me later and said how much courage it had taken for him to come up and talk to me at the MTC. But he said his son wanted me to know of his effort to try to make things right. It had not been easy for him to get a mission call. Not only were there all the court-imposed sanctions and Church restrictions, but there was the terrible personal burden of guilt, and all of this had to be resolved with a member of the Council of the Twelve. But he wanted to serve a mission because it was the right thing to do and because it was a way for him to say to the Church and to the government and the university and the Lord and all who cared about him, I'm back. I made a serious mistake, but I'm back. I am making up lost ground. I've still got a chance. As you know, there are other painful stories about transgressions and heartache on this very campus, stories involving very serious, but usually less public, mistakes. The prayer in my heart this morning is that to help some of you—we might help any of you, we might help even one of you—have a similarly happy ending to your story A story which you may feel is pocked and blemished beyond repair for some past mistake you have made. In short, I wish to speak to you of the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus Christ and why his gospel is indeed the good news. Because of him, we can rise above past problems. We can blot them out. We can watch them die if we are willing to have it so. I'm not sure just what your most painful memories are. I'm certain there are lots of problems we could all list. Some may be sins among the most serious God himself has listed. Others may be less serious disappointments, including a poor start in school or a difficult relationship with your family or some personal pain with a friend. Whatever the list, it's bound to be long when we add up all the dumb things we've done. And My greatest fear is that you will not believe in other chances, that you will not understand repentance, that on some days you won't believe in any future at all. In what may be literature's most extreme and chilling observation of such debilitating, unassuaged guilt, we watch Macbeth, cousin of the king, masterful, strong, honored and honorable descend through a horrible series of bloody deeds by which his very soul is increasingly tortured by an agony which knows no repose. Shapes of terror appear before his eyes, and the sounds of hell clamor in his ears. His guilty heart and tormented conscience rend his days and terrify his nights so incessantly that he finally says to his physician, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Well, the doctor just shakes his head over such diseases of the soul and says, Therein the patient must minister to himself. But the anguish continues unabated, until Macbeth says, on the day he will die, out. Out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth's murders are sins too strong for the kinds of transgressions you and I might discuss at BYU, but I believe the despair of his final hopelessness can be applied, at least in part, to our own circumstances. Unless we believe in repentance and unless we believe in restoration, unless we believe there can be a way back from our mistakes, even serious mistakes, whether those sins be sexual or social or civil or academic, whether they be great or small, unless we believe we can start over on solid ground with our past put behind us and genuine hope for the future. In short, if we cannot believe in the compassion of Christ and his redemptive love, then I think we are in our own way every bit as hopeless as Macbeth and our view of life just as depressing. We do become shadows, feeble players on a perverse stage, in a tale told by an idiot. And unfortunately, in such a burdened state, we are the idiots. As we begin to write of, as, I'm sorry, as he began to write of what he would call the miracle of forgiveness, President Kimball said, I had made up my mind that I would never write a book. But when I came in contact almost daily with broken homes, delinquent children, corrupt governments, apostate groups, and realized that all these problems are the result of sin, then I want to shout with Alma. Oh, that I might go forth with a voice and shake the earth and cry repentance unto every people. Hence this book, his book, indicates the seriousness of breaking God's commandments, shows that sin can bring only sorrow, remorse, disappointment, and anguish, and warns that the small indiscretions involve into larger ones and finally into major transgressions, which bring heavy penalties. But having come to recognize their deep sin— Many have tended to surrender hope, not having a clear knowledge of the scriptures and of the redeeming power of Christ. So I also write, President Kimball said, to make the joyous affirmation that man can be literally transformed by his own repentance and by God's forgiveness. It is my humble hope, he concludes, that those who are suffering the baleful effects of sin can be helped to find the way. From darkness to light, from suffering to peace, and from spiritual death to eternal life. That is what I want for you this morning, this new year, this new semester at BYU. Without ever minimizing the seriousness of our mistakes, my message to you today is that we can be washed and pronounced clean if we will honor the blood of the Lamb. From relatively innocent mistakes or disadvantages in life to the most serious of spiritual sins, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a way back. We must believe in movement from darkness to light, from suffering to peace, from misery to hope. What if Alma had not come back? He had made serious mistakes, more serious probably than we know. He is described, at least, as a very wicked and idolatrous man, one who sought to destroy the church and delighted in rebelling against God. Those are quotes. He was, in short, another quote, the very vilest of sinners. The strongest denunciation comes from his own lips when he said to his son Helaman, I had rebelled against God. I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. You'll see the significance of that in his mind. So great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. Well, he may not have been Macbeth, but that is a frightening description of a man standing before God. But he came back, not without anguish and suffering and fear, not without, quote, wandering through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, close quote, but he paid the full price and he came back on the strength of Christ's love. And every life thereafter, both in the Book of Mormon and in our own generation, has been enriched because of the life Alma then lived. What if he had not had the courage to make amends, however severe, and had remained at the far end of a road he never should have taken? What if, having found himself in such a mess, he had despairingly despairingly thrown his hands in the air and said, Out, brief candle, I am a poor player upon a stage. My life is a tale told by an idiot. Or what if a mistake or two had so crippled Peter that he had not come back, stronger than ever after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Master? A few years ago, President Gordon B. Hinckley noted Peter's struggle. After recounting the events of Jesus' ordeal in accusation and mock trial and imprisonment and noting Peter's remorseful acquiescence to it, President Hinckley said, As I have read this account, my heart goes out to Peter. So many of us are so much like him. We pledge our loyalty. We affirm our determination to be of good courage. We declare sometimes, even publicly, that come what will, we will do the right thing that we will stand for the right cause, that we'll be true to ourselves and to others. and Then the pressures begin to build. Sometimes they're social pressures. Sometimes they're personal appetites. Sometimes they're false ambitions. And there's a weakening of the will and a softening of the discipline. Then there's capitulation. And then there's remorse and self-accusation and bitter tears of regret. Close quote. Well, if Peter's story were to end there, with him cursing and swearing and saying, I know not the man, surely his would be among the most pathetic in all scripture. But Peter came back. He squared his shoulders and stiffened his resolve and made up for lost ground. He took command of a frightened little band of church members. He preached such a moving sermon on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 people in the audience applied for baptism. Days later, 5,000 heard him and were baptized. With John, he healed the lame man at the gate of the temple. Faith in Peter's faith brought the sick into the streets on their beds of affliction, that, quote, at least the shadow of Peter passing over them might might bless them, close quote. He fearlessly spoke for his brethren when they were arraigned before the Sanhedrin and when they were cast into prison. He entertained angels and received the vision that led to carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. He became in every sense the rock Christ promised he would be. Of that life, President Hinckley then said, I pray that you may draw comfort and resolution from the example of Peter, who, though he had walked daily with Jesus in an hour of extremity, denied both the Lord and the testimony which he carried in his heart. But he rose above this and became a mighty defender and a powerful advocate. So, too, there is a way for you to turn around and to build the kingdom of God. Close quote. Of course, one of the added tragedies in transgression is that even if we make the the effort to come back, to change, to try again, others often insist on leaving old labels on us. I grew up in a town with a boy who had no father and preciously few of the other blessings of life. The young men in our community found it remarkably easy to tease and to taunt and to bully him. And In the process of it all, he made some mistakes, though I cannot to this hour believe his mistakes were as serious as those of his Latter-day Saint friends who made life so miserable for him. He began to drink and to smoke, and gospel principles which had never meant much to him now meant even less. He had been cast in a role by LDS friends who should have known better, and he began to play the part perfectly. Soon he drank even more, went to school even less, and went to church not at all. And then one day he was gone. Some said they thought he'd joined the army. That was about 1959 or so. Fifteen or sixteen years later, it was reported to me that he tried to come back to that little community. I say he tried to come back. He had found the significance of the gospel in his life, He'd married a wonderful girl and had a beautiful little family, but he discovered something upon his return. He had changed, but some of his old friends hadn't, and they were unwilling to let him escape his past. This was hard for him, and it was hard for his family. They bought a little home and started a little business, but they struggled, both personally and professionally, and finally they moved away For reasons that don't need to be, nor should be, detailed here, the story goes on to a rather unhappy ending. He died a year ago at age 44. That's too young to die these days, and it's certainly too young to die away from home. When a battered, weary swimmer tries valiantly to get back to shore, after having fought strong winds and rough ways, which he probably never should have challenged in the first place, those of us who might have had better judgment or perhaps simply better luck ought not to row out to his side, beat him on the head with our oars, and shove him back underwater. That's not what boats are made for, but that's what we do to each other. In General Conference a few years ago, Elder David B. Haight told us this. He said that Arturo Toscanini, the late, famous conductor of the New York Philharmonic, received a brief, crumpled letter from a lonely sheepherder in the remote reaches of Mountain Wyoming. It read, Mr. Conductor, I have only two possessions, a radio and an old violin. The batteries on my radio are getting low and will soon die. My violin is out of tune, and I can't use it. Please help me. Next Sunday, when you begin your concert— Sound a loud A, so I can tune my A string. Then I can tune the others. When my radio batteries are dead, then I'll still have my violin. At the beginning of his next nationwide radio concert from Carnegie Hall, Toscanini stepped forward and announced, For a dear friend and listener, back in the mountains of Wyoming, the orchestra will now sound an A. The musicians all joined together in a perfect note. That lonely sheepherder only needed one, just a little help to get back in tune. He needed someone who cared to assist him with just one string. After that, the others would be relatively easy. In the early years of this Church, the Prophet Joseph Smith had no more faithful aid than William Wines Phelps. Brother Phelps, a former newspaper editor, had joined the church in Kirtland and was of such assistance to those early leaders that they sent him as one of the Latter-day Saints, one of the first Latter-day Saints, to the New Jerusalem, Jackson County, Missouri. There he was called by the Lord to the stake presidency of that center stake of Zion. But then troubles developed. First, there were these were largely ecclesiastical aberrations, but later there were financial improprieties. Things became so serious that the Lord revealed to Joseph Smith that if Phelps did not repent, he would be removed out of his place. He did not repent, and he was excommunicated on March 10, 1838. The Prophet Joseph and others immediately tried to love Phelps back into the fold, but he would have nothing of it. And then in the fall of that violent year, W. W. Phelps, along with others, signed a deadly, damaging affidavit against the Prophet and other leaders of the Church. The result was quite simply that Joseph Smith was sentenced to be publicly executed on the town square in far west Missouri, Friday morning, November second, 1838. Through the monumental courage of General Alexander Donovan, the prophet was rather miraculously spared the execution Phelps and others had precipitated. But he was not spared spending five months, November through April, in several Missouri prisons, the most noted of which was that pit ironically known as Liberty Jail. I do not need to recount for you the suffering of the saints through that period. The anguish of those not captive was in many ways more severe than those imprisoned. The persecution intensified until the saints sought yet again to find another refuge from the storm. With Joseph in chains, praying for their safety and giving some direction by letter, they made their way toward Commerce, Illinois, a malaria swamp on the Mississippi River, where they would try once more to build the city of Zion. And so much of this travail, so much of this torment and heartache, due to men of their own brotherhood, like W. W. Phelps. But we're speaking today of happy endings. Two very difficult years later, with great anguish and remorse of conscience, Phelps wrote to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, Brother Joseph, I am as the prodigal son. I have seen the folly of my way, and I tremble tremble at the gulf I have passed. I ask my old brethren to forgive me, and though they chasten me to death, yet I will die with them, for their God is my God. The least place with them is enough for me. It's bigger and better than all Babylon. I know my situation. You know it. God knows it. And I want to be saved with my friends if they will help me. I've done wrong, and I'm sorry. I ask forgiveness. I want your fellowship. But if you cannot grant that, at least grant me your peace." and your friendship, for we are brethren, and our communion used to be sweet. Well, the Prophet Joseph wrote back in a flash, I know of no private document or personal response in the life of Joseph Smith, or anyone else for that matter, which so powerfully demonstrates the magnificence of his soul. There is a lesson here for every one of us who claims to be a disciple of Christ. He wrote, Dear Brother Phelps, You may in some measure realize what my feelings were when we read your letter. We have suffered much in consequence of your behavior. The cup of gall, already full for mortals to drink, was indeed filled to overflowing when you turned against us. However, that cup has been drunk. The will of our Father has been done, and we are yet alive, for which we thank the Lord. And having been delivered from the hands of wicked men by the mercy of our God, We say it is your privilege to be delivered from the powers of the adversary. Be brought into the liberty of God's dear children and again take your stand among the saints of the Most High. And by diligence, humility, and love unfeigned, commend yourself to our God and your God and the Church of Jesus Christ. Believing your confession to be real and your repentance genuine, I shall be happy once again to give you The right hand of fellowship, and rejoice over the returning prodigal. Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. Yours as ever, Joseph Smith, Jr. It only adds to the poignance of this particular prodigal's return that exactly four years later, almost to the day, it would be W. W. Phelps selected to preach Joseph Smith's funeral sermon in those terribly tense and emotional circumstances in Nauvoo. Furthermore, it would be W. W. Phelps who would memorialize the martyred prophet with his hymn of adoration, Praise to the Man. Having been the foolish swimmer pulled back to safety by the very man he had sought to destroy, Phelps must have had unique appreciation for the stature of a friend When he penned, great is his glory, and endless his priesthood, ever and ever the keys he will hold. Faithful and true, he will enter the kingdom, crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. I ask that we sing a verse of that hymn this morning only for this reason, that the next time you sing it, you remember what it meant to W. W. Phelps to have a chance, a way, a hand, to come back. Perhaps the most encouraging and compassionate parable in all of Holy Writ is the story of the prodigal son. I close with Mary Lyman Henry's poetic expression of it entitled, To Any Who Have Watched for a Son's Returning. He watched his son gather all the goods that were his lot, anxious to be gone from tending flocks and the dullness of the fields. He stood by the olive tree gate long after the caravan disappeared where the road climbs the hills on the far side of the valley, of the valley into infinity. Through changing seasons he spent the light in a great chair facing the far country and that speck of road on the horizon. Mocking friends said, He will not come. Whispering servants said, The old man has lost his senses. A chiding son said, You never should have let him go. A grieving wife said, You need rest and sleep. So she covered his drooping so- shoulders, his calloused knees, when the east winds blew chill. Until that day, Until that day, a form familiar, even at infinity, in shreds, alone, stumbling over pebbles, And while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed it. God bless us to help each other come back. We're all prodigal one way or another. God bless us to come home to a father, finding waiting there a robe and a ring and a fatted calf. I pray in the name of him who made it possible, even the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.